on today's episode of The Mythic Masculine. The project of Westernism is to find that singular narrative, that one story to rule them all. It's, uh, even Western science, I mean, the, the Holy Grail is unified field theory, right? And that's pretty much the same thing in economics. They're trying to find that one perfect economic system that will be able to be global and unify everything. They want one culture, one language, one way of thinking, one story, which it's kind of noble in a way, but they want to find that one empirical truth that everybody will have to acknowledge and everybody can come under that. <laughs> Ironically, they've had to separate themselves from the only thing that is um, that is eternal and inalienable. They've had to separate themselves from that in order to go on a quest to find it. And, and that, that one thing is the law of the land. The law is in the land, and um, that's inalienable, and it's eternal, and it'll be here long after all this concrete crumbles. What does it mean to be a man today? The toxic patterns of masculinity are being challenged, and the new pathways are just beginning to rise. In the era of Me Too and biospheric uncertainty, how might we look to the old mythologies for guidance to navigate this space between stories? This podcast explores the historical, cultural, and contemporary voices that are shaping this dynamic conversation of the emerging masculinities. Greetings, dear listener. I'm your host, Ian McKenzie. My guest today is Tyson Yankaporta, an academic, poet, and carver of traditional tools and weapons. He is a senior lecturer in Indigenous Knowledges at Deakin University in Melbourne, and the author of the book Sand Talk, How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World. Since its release, Sand Talk has received many glowing reviews and offered a crucial Indigenous perspective on the areas of history, education, money, power, and sustainability, using traditional wisdom for a livable future. I first learned of Tyson from the Melbourne-based men's group Warrior Within, and with the surprising success of his book, have observed Tyson being ushered into a growing spotlight. For our conversation, I was excited to explore his take on masculinity, and he offered a raw and personal dive that touched some deep places in us both. We speak about the importance of relationship as the truth of our being, where the term toxic masculinity came from and why it's a bad story, how a man's relationship with the land mirrors his intimate relationships to others, and why tracking the mystery of emergence invites us to look to the wisdom of the outliers. Before we begin, I wish to offer huge gratitude to my Patreon supporters, whose support makes this podcast possible. If you're stirred by this podcast, please consider joining. Supporters get access to exclusive bonus episodes and behind-the-scenes perks. Visit themythicmasculine.com and click Become a Supporter to learn more. As well, the Mythic Masculine Network is alive and thriving. It's an online community of artists, activists, poets, parents, and lovers of mythology, ritual, and wonder. Each week we explore shared practices, online councils, exclusive film screenings, and much more. Head to network.themythicmasculine.com to claim your two-week free trial. And now, enjoy my conversation with Tyson Yonkaporta. Welcome, Tyson, to the show. How you going, man? 
I'd love to begin by asking uh, a little bit of where you are right now, if you could describe, you know, physically, emotionally, geographically, just so the listener can can have a sense of, of where you are. Uh, I'm on um, Bunurong country um, near Melbourne there. Uh, sorry, I think of Melbourne as that city part in the center. This is still included as Melbourne. Um, but th- this is Bunurong country. Uh, all this country used to be a swamp um, that's been concreted over and waterways have been drained and diverted and all that sort of thing. Um, so the Yarra River that runs through, yeah, it's, it's, it's been changed in its course. But the old one still runs under the ground. And, you know, the groundwater is really important um, to me. For a lot of us, that's where, um, you know, there's certain sites in that underground water where, you know, um, a lot of your uh, children's spirits get born out of that and uh, into you when you're born. Like it's sung into you and then you you can kind of recycle. Well, part of your spirit recycles back to that. Yeah, and so there's a lot of that groundwater around and you can feel it. Uh, there's a place not far from here. Uh, called Mullenbull, and, and the, the groundwater is really strong there, so I go there whenever I can, and I take my kids there because it's, and you see them just acting like kids for half an hour, <laughs> which is really good. So yeah, where I am now in, in my head is 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 in we're in this really big lockdown with COVID. Um, I've been inside this fucking house all year because um, all the universities have been closed all year, uh, so I've been working from home. And my, my woman's also been working from home. And so we've both been locked up here trying to work full time with, um, with two babies uh, who also need full time care and your attention every five minutes. And it's, um, it's taken its toll, bros. Wow. Um, and so where I'm at in my head is in a pretty um, uh, no good place. There's a lot of things have built up. Um, this book, uh, that book that I wrote over a year ago, Sand Talk, was published here a year ago. Um, it's sold a lot more than they expected. It was supposed to just be a small thing. Um, so I wrote it quite intimately so that I could follow up on all the relationships I made through that book, but it's selling too many now. And that's having an impact because of you know the marketplace. People respond differently to you when there's that that perception of economic success, you know, something being successful in the marketplace with units sold, mm-hmm. and they respond to you differently. And um, it tends to destroy most of your actual relationships in the world and makes you really vulnerable to a lot of predators and all that sort of thing. Hmm. Um, wow. Yeah, so I'm pretty much just um, under siege at the moment and trying to figure out how I'm going to put my life back together. <laughs> so that's where I'm up to. How you been going? Wow. Wow. <laughs> Thank you, Tyson. Um, it sounds like a lot of, um, lot of layers happening all during this time. And yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's too many, Yeah, you know, but, but it's, um, mostly just the absolute, um, inferno of my personal relationships and, and you just, um, your relationships are who you are, you know, um, your relationships to human and non-human. You know, and I just, um, I only moved into this city and it was a new experience for me living in the city, uh, what, three years ago. And, um, and that, that's been a really horrendous transition for me, but I was managing to get out of the city a fair bit and still connect, you know, and I was managing to get back up home at least twice a year and sometimes for a few months at a time and, you know, make sure all those relationships were, 
still tight. And so that was keeping me vaguely human, but it's it's been a year now wow. uh, since I've been back home, a bit more than a year actually, and I've never been away for that long. And um, that's really hard. And suddenly you've got to try and be a whole community for your one partner and for your poor two kids there. <laughs> you've got to be the village to raise that child. And, um, you know, same for I've got to be everything for her and she's got to try and be everything for me. Um, that's that's a lot of pressure, you know. So you, you are, we all think we have these hidden depths, bros, that we have this uh, deep consciousness. Um, but individually, we don't. And this quest for self-actualization, you know, that happens in all these Western ways of being, it's kind of bullshit because there is no self to actualize. We're quite shallow little things on our own. Everything that we have, everything that is us, the things we speak from, they're in a kind of external hard drive. They're not actually in our hardware or software. <laughs> we don't have much. We just respond from moment to moment. And we say things and we think it's coming from the depths of our being, but it can only come from the spaces in between, which is our relations, you know, our relations with the human and non-human world. We speak from that and we know from that. Each of us is speaking from that. And we feel that to be within the depths of ourselves, you know, within this economic structure that we're all struggling under this, this liberalism where we're all subjects to that. And we believe that we're these fabulous individuals making our way in the world on a hero's journey to actualize ourselves, but there's fuck all there. Inside you is nothing. You're not special, but you belong to something special in your network of relations with all the humans and non-humans you know and the places that you're connected to and those places in the land where your spirit came out of. And that's, that's what you are, you know. And so right now we're trying to speak to each other and, and I'm, I'm speaking from a place of disconnection. And so I'm speaking out of a vacuum where my relationships used to be. <laughs> so, um, but I guess even that absence is something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you, Tyson, for beginning us so uh, fiercely. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, sometimes I go on a bit no, for too long. No, no, it's beautiful. Thank you. But particularly, it's that's usually a symptom, like a sign that I'm out of relation. If I monologue too much and we're not doing back and forth, and I'm not listening to your stories or connecting properly with you, maybe you and me will connect today, and that'll that'll give me something to speak from. So I would like to hear your your stories as well, and have those if we can just have those come alongside. But I understand you've probably told all those before, and your audience already knows them, so. If you've got any new stuff for them, then bring that. <laughs> I'd love to. Yeah, thank you. Well, you've touched on many of the themes that uh, you know are very much alive. I mean, both in my story and um, in this podcast, which is called the Mythic Masculine, and you know, in, in many ways, it's meant to mm, bring forth um, an understanding of this mythopoetic movement. Is called um, you know, somewhat started by people like Robert Bly and Michael Mead and this sense of the stories re, re bringing forth a, a storied understanding, right. Of what it means to be embodied as, as a man or a woman or these energies of the masculine and feminine, you know, that some ways there's a cultural 
contextual um, link that I'm trying to make. Mm. And at the same time, in this podcast, I'm really trying to branch out and involve a lot more perspectives on this subject matter, not specifically restricted to masculinity, but certainly as a jumping off point and a number of um, other perspectives, uh, particularly indigenous perspectives, I think are vital because they really bring a sense of like different questions to the equation, right? Different ways of looking at this um, in, a, in a whole other way that, you know, the, the modern way of seeing can't see. Mm. And so this is why for our conversation, I'm really grateful to be here with you and um, Santok as well seems to be, um, like you said, a sort of a, um, a deeply needed and also kind of a, um, I don't know, a tidal wave of reactivity that has come your way um, because of it. And I guess that's my question, you know, that as we're wrestling with these things, you know, I myself have a young son, he's two years old. Um, I, I live in a collective project here uh, on this island with others trying to wrestle out what does it mean to, you know, revillage, and, you know, all these things are very much alive uh, for me as well. And so I'd love to jump a little bit just into this question of masculinity for you. And growing up as you did, what were the like? What were the models that you looked to, um, you know, conditioned or otherwise, that gave you a sense about what it means to be a man? Like, who were the who were the templates that you had in your growing up? Oh, just just all all wrong, all wrong. The worst possible templates, you know. Um, basically, you know, being uh, trained from a young age to be able to just basically maim people up i guess because that's you know people are pricks and you know and you've got to always be prepared to go one step further than anybody who wants to try and uh, harm you and basically uh you know coming up in quite um uh yeah really difficult places you know the kind of schools in remote places where nobody wears shoes and being the only kid in the school in in, in uh, sort of uh, they call them construction camps, but it's places where people are trying to build infrastructure out in the middle of nowhere, um, and most people are living in caravans or what we call dongas. And I don't know if you've heard of dongas, but they're like these little uh, portable sheds that they put um, workers in temporary things. They call them dongas because it's usually for single men's quarters, and donga means dick. Uh, so they call they just call them dicks. Um, so I grew up in a bunch of dicks and had a very phallic, <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, what they refer to now as toxic masculine, um, kind of everything, every role model, everything I saw. And just, just, I mean, being the only kid at these shitty little schools and many of them that I went to, uh, the only kid who didn't have freckles basically, you know, and just getting the, just the absolute shit kicked out of me, you know. How uh, you bungy looking cunt, smash and off it goes. Um, but then having just every every strong role model I had, male role model, was about things like you know, okay, so those you know you're ten years old, those teenage boys are trying to kill you basically. <laughs> you know they're chasing you and um, and trying to hurt you very badly. So you know you have to get this uh, piece of wood and hammer you know, six inch nails through it and you need to go and kill them. Um, so it was kind of that just, um, shitty illusion of Darwinian bloody survival of the fittest stuff. Um, 
you know, and eventually with this overlay of, of this understanding that I had a genetic inheritance that, that made me drink, uh, drink and fight more than everybody else. And that's pretty much, that was my, <laughs> that was my legacy. And there's a certain pride in that. And so, you know, eventually, you know, you're a young man and watching things like uh, Once Were Warriors and really, I don't know if you know of that film with Tamuera Morrison in it, the, the New Zealand film. Um, you know, I, I watched that maybe 20 times and, you know, I bought a t-shirt that looked just like his and I just walked around in the room in, in the world, like, like, like that character, what I imagined, what I projected onto that, that, um, horrendous father figure. Cause he was like, almost like the apex predator in the pantheon of, of masculinity that I was deferring to, you know, Jake the Muss, you know? And he will fucking destroy anybody, you know, who disrespects him. And I, I just worshipped that character. And I walked around in the, in the world just, um, just beating the shit out of people. I did that for a really long time. I'm trying to remember the last fight that I had. And it was quite a while ago. Because um, I came out of that, um, that nightmare escape just over a couple of decades ago. What what changed for you then that that allowed you to to choose a different way? Just a, a shift in the knowledge, because um, for a long time I, I saw uh, all I saw about myself was a genetic inheritance, and then after that I started to I, I started to take up uh, you know this idea of culture as something to perform. So I was playing the didgeridoo, uh, <laughs> you know. Uh, throwing boomerangs, hunting, um, you know, doing corroboree, painting up just random, you know, and just doing the same six corroboree dances that everybody learns in prison, you know, and thinking that that was, I was being cultural and had this identity and all that sort of thing. But what changed for me is when I started to see that, um, see that, that, that the, all these things that people think of and these clumsy terms of culture and identity and everything that it was actually in our ways of thinking and our ways of being and doing and knowing and, you know, reasoning and, um, that there were patterns there and that could bring you into a, a real relationship with the land rather than just a sentiment based thing, you know, or, or a performative thing of, you know, Oh, I'm close to the land. Um, and so when I came out of the illusion and, and started touching the reality, the pattern of creation, that changed things. And violence ended for me. Uh, well, as a perpetrator of violence, you know. Um, and I was always like, I thought I had this ethic that I was never fighting anybody unless they attacked me first, you know. But after that, I was still being attacked. But, you know, but I was, I was doing a thing instead where I'd stand really strong. You know, my little niece had come running in. I uh, think about this one night, you know, she come running in and she's screaming. She's like, uncle, uncle, he's killing her. He's killing her. And so I run next door and he is indeed killing her. And so that would, the old Tyson would have been the one that just put that guy in hospital because he deserved that. And I had to protect her. I didn't, I stood in between them and I just put my hands behind my back and I just stood there like a tree and I took everything he could throw at me 
he uh, dislocated my jaw and eventually he threw a really big punch but missed me somehow I think he was drunk and he fell down and he was really shamed from that and he got up and started screaming and he took off um, and then he started screaming that I pushed him oh, wow. <laughs> he dislocated my jaw and he was like I you know ah you pushed me you pushed me so he went off and got all his cousins and then they all came around and had a go but look I just took that and I saved her saved the kids and I didn't have to throw one punch and um and I've been doing that ever since wow and you know what you know what's weird when you do that for a while suddenly people stop attacking you I don't know if it's that you give off a smell <laughs> or something like that but you know my perception was that that people would just uh, attack me and so I had a right to defend myself uh, but when I started standing strong um, and you know what there was less damage done to me I know I had a dislocated jaw from that and um, some very sore ears and you know a couple of cracked ribs or whatever but it was a hell of a lot better than the damage that I was doing to my hands before that because in in all of these fights you know I've, I've cracked pretty much every knuckle and that's given me a lot of trouble <laughs> now that I'm 48 <laughs> you know in my hands so yeah it's it's just I, I guess when you start to when you start to come into proper relation and you stop seeing yourself as this individual you know who needs to improve themselves I stopped trying to improve myself you know I stopped trying to uh, you know and instead I started improving my relationships and not just with human beings you know but with all the world around me and I I, I brought myself into relation with creation and the patterns of creation I really appreciate this story and it makes me think of something you'd said uh, in a previous interview that you know I look out at the masculine or say men in the world and I see what feels like a similar picture you know, it feels like violence and mayhem and trespass and sociopathy and you know, all that stuff, right? And it's very easy to feel, oh, this is just men. This is what men are like. You know, universally, this is men. There's a couple of good ones here and there, but, you know, um, that's just where toxic masculinity comes from, it seems to be, right? And what I heard you say is that the, the, the actions that humans take within a system are governed by that system. Or at least that's my interpretation, right? That there's something within the system that values those kinds of behaviors or, or doesn't um, guard against these kinds of behaviors from sort of rising to the top. And you brought up this question of culture, right? And this is really fascinating to me because I just want to make a link to what I feel that the conversation at large uh, seems to be is this question of, you know, again, toxic masculinity as I, I feel it's maybe not the right question. You know that's being asked, yeah. Because I feel like when 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 an indigenous lens is brought in, what I seem to um, see in the pattern that is revealed is that there's like a cultural um, intelligence that is brought forth that brings about very different behaviors. It's not to say you know yeah you know violence and that never happens, but there's a whole other cosmology or relational matrix that that I would love for you to maybe speak to about you know it seems like because you discovered that it seems from your journey. Well, let's just apply that. We'll apply that to what you just, the, all the things you just said. Um, so really, w w for me, what I focus on um, in that lens is a, um, a method of inquiry. So a really um, important part of, I mean, there's a few things in an indigenous method of inquiry. It's, you know, including variables like time and place and things like that. But most importantly, it's about getting to the foundational story 
of any new knowledge. So when I look at something like toxic man masculinity, I want to know the story that that came out of. And so I dig and I talk to a lot of people over a number of years and then I sit with those stories and I find that uh, toxic masculinity emerged from men's groups, weirdly enough. The term toxic masculinity didn't come from feminism. It was taken up later, but they were taking a, a foundational story that was actually antithetical to their story, which is why it hasn't worked. Because the actual idea of toxic masculinity originally was, you know, a whole heap of men in, in like um, new age drum circles and, you know, trying to get in touch with their inner primitive, primitive with their, you know, white activism and, um, you know, uh, their inner caveman. And they identified toxic masculinity as, um, as having, as a generation of men having been raised by women to, you know, devalue their, what any right thinking person would, would, um, would identify as the worst traits of, of masculinity coming out of this, what you call culture, you know? Um, so they were trying to re-identify with that. And so they referred to toxic masculinity as, as men becoming soft and, um, you know, more feminine. And they were trying to detoxify masculinity by injecting it with all of these aggressive, you know, um, ideas of a caveman running around and smashing people on the head with a club, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that was wrong story and stories. There's two kinds of story. There's stories that can heal and there's stories that can kill. And that's one of the stories that kill. And unfortunately the, the women's movement, actually took up that wrong story from the men's movement and they kept that branding of toxic masculinity. Um, and it hasn't taken root. There's been no good sense making around that because it's the actual foundational story is the opposite of what they're trying to say. So it doesn't work, you know? Um, so, you know, that's, that's the indigenous lens brings that. And, but also I'd argue that it's not a culture that we're facing here, that, that it's an economy. You were talking about like uh, a culture that rewards these, these worst actions of masculinity, but it's actually an economy. So there's a system of rewards that rewards the most psychotic behavior. You know, so if you want to get ahead, the more psychotic you are, the more chances you are of progressing. That's not a cultural thing. It's purely an economic thing. So it's just a, a self-terminating economic system um, that we all have to come into and under. We have to live under that if we want to be sheltered, if we want to eat, be clothed and have any kind of relationships. We have to come into this toxic economy and we have to be in it and we have to be of it. And it eats us alive. It eats men like air. As Sylvia Plath said, it eats men like air and it enslaves women. You know, it chews us up and spits us out and then uses whatever is left of us to uh, oppress the other half of the population, which is, you know, our women. Um, it's it's a it's an economic thing. It's not a cultural thing. There's nothing wrong with the Anglo culture because I've looked into that foundational story. People, um, people just go, oh, Anglo culture is evil. But I've looked into the foundational story of that and where it came from. And I've come to the conclusion that if an actual angle, one of those angles, you know, from a thousand years ago, 
if you brought them forward in time and showed them now what Anglo culture has become, he, he would probably just weep. He would say, that's not my culture. Stop calling it Anglo. Stop calling it English. That's my language and that's a sacred language. You can get your goddamn hands off it because that's not what you're doing. You're doing some other evil shit and I don't like it. <laughs> yeah. You know, I guess that's the, what the lens does. It, it allows you to, uh, to dig until you find the sweet water of that foundational story and you find the truth of things or something. Of, not, isn't, yeah, not truth, but, um, you know, a model that actually works across a lot of contexts, a, a theory, a model of, of being. I really appreciate that. And, you know, I wonder about this villain of patriarchy as well like as a as an identity or as a label how useful is it from the process of you know discovering you know what's this core story because at least my understanding from perceiving you know what patriarchy quote has become you know in this sort of modern story context is essentially you know at some point in history that men wrestled power away from maybe a matriarchal um, cultural structures and through their worship of sky gods um, versus you know earth of gods that they essentially you know brought forth hierarchical systems of power and control and war and since then it's been rolling 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 and here we go so I, and for me that feels a bit of a simple yeah it feels simple too simple in some sense you know yeah. that because it does seem to say oh well it's basically men you know gave in to their lower natures or something and then decided to rise to the top and we're still there but but again i see there's something else i feel there's some deeper wound or some deeper water that wants to be you know, touched on. And I wonder what you might think. Too. Well, look, I, I think that narrative I, I found when digging around that that's, that's coming from an evolutionary theory lens. Um, that one, you know, that these, you know, how those things have evolved. And it's also coming from a, a very limited understanding and knowledge of the story of what happened. And also coming from a misapprehension of what prehistoric, what they call, before history cultures um are all about so you know i'm sure that they that a couple of civilizations experimented with matriarchies um in in fact i'm i'm pretty sure that um i'm pretty sure that that agamemnon's wife was a matriarch until he took over just from digging around in those old stories uh, especially some of those old greek writings about that you know, i'm pretty sure she was a matriarch and he took over and, and began that expansionism. And so you got the Trojan War and all that kind of thing. But it, 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 as you say, it's not that simple. So in the actual prehistoric, so before civilization and before writing, you know, the actual cultures there, um, I, I think you'd find there's a lot more balance. There's neither a patriarchy nor a matriarchy because that's in my root culture. That's, that's what I see there. You know, so I see these um, tumpup uh, fire sticks, you know, um, that, that my family makes. And they sit in this, this pouch of beeswax and giddy beads and um, pandanus twine. And it comes from this uh, yokpup, uh, this wood. And it's two sticks. And one of them is, um, is pum and one is wunch. Tum pum, tum wunch. And then you have um, uh, wunch tum, pam tum. And so they, they, they flip around and make the, the words for hu husband and wife. 
And our, our word for people is pamwanch, which is, you know, woman, man. Woman, man is, is how we say people, you know. So there is that balance there. And those, those fire sticks go alongside each other, and you can't make fire without both. And, and it's a very important symbol of, how, of that relation of man and woman. And the word for husband, the word for wife is fire man, fire woman, because you both sit there at that fire. And you both bring things to that fire. And no one is dominant over the other. It's a really strong cultural ethic. Um, and, you know, women are always, have always been very powerful in our culture, but not dominant. And same way with men. That's been a projection onto our culture that's happened from um, anthropologists and settlers coming and observing things and trying to map their own hierarchies onto our ways of being. Yeah, there's so much more about fire there, and I, look, I, I want to get I, I want to get to that eagle picture behind you too because you're looking <laughs> at me the whole time, and uh, that's all I can sure. think about. Um, so we'll get to story about that yeah. soon too. But you got to talk for a bit now because I, I really you got me monologuing <laughs> again. <laughs> I I know I so appreciate this um, inquiry because what I've tried to understand more is how essentially what is the relationship between culture and uh, a kind of resilience um, in the ability to relate. I mean, you know, let's say between the genders, but also between the non-human and the land, that there has to be a mark of a, of a real culture. I guess that's what I'm trying to get at. That it, are there markers by which we could say, well, this is, a, this is an achieved culture because its capacity to value, to initiate, you know, to give back, uh, in all the relations that touch it uh, versus modern culture, which is probably characterized by a sense of uh, entitlement and, and taking and consumption and commodification and, you know, essentially the anti-relationship force. And so that's why I wonder if you could bring the indigenous lens, as you said, to look at, you know, what's happened to the relations um, between the genders from an indigenous lens, because I feel like the questions that are being asked in the modern culture are part of the culture itself, right? So that's what I'm trying to kind of like sidestep and say, well, wait a second, are you, you, what if we looked differently? What might we find? Well, I mean, I had a conversation with, um, with another fellow. I don't know if you know Mansell Denton's work. It, he, does, um, he does another male uh, podcast the Marcel Denton podcast, and he very much focuses from a sacred hunting kind of lens uh, in the States there. And, um, yeah, we talked about a lot of things. We talked about a um, that your relationship with land, your relationship with the land will reflect your relationship with other people, particularly with intimate partners, that you, can, you will know how somebody is in their intimate relations by how they uh, how they approach the land and the landscape so your relationship with land will impact well won't just impact it will define your relationship with uh if you're a heterosexual cis male then your relationship particularly with women um will be dictated by your connection with the land which is is really profound because that was where this what we're calling patriarchy, for want of a better better word, that was where this began. It was with that that uh, mistake a few thousand years ago 
of of creating two words, you know, for uh, society and nature. So creating a word for nature as a separate thing from human life, so that your, you know, natural your your the ecology of land would be a different pattern from the ecology of your community. That was that first division. And as soon as that division was made and we were separated from the land, and there was this idea that we could have dominion over that land, then that changed our relationship between men and women. And, you know, uh, Francis Bacon famously said that, you know, when the scientific method was discovered, finally we have a tool uh, by which we can hold Mother Nature, hold nature down by her hair and submit her to our will. Um, you know, so there's been various permutations of that. Uh, nature is seen as feminine. The original words for nature are just a few thousand years ago that were created. They were usually, so they were in languages where you had masculine and feminine words. Nature was a feminine word because the idea was that, that we, the male, would, with our, you know, massive, transcendent, all-powerful cocks would, you know, be able to, you know, dominate this environment. So we separated from it, and eventually that became the idea that land was property, land was capital, to be held by the most powerful and the fittest males. And that's it. So women became chattel as well, at around the same time that land became chattel. That's the economic structure that we're in. It's not a culture, it's an economy. And a lot of people don't recognize that. And look, I, I think we need to... Um, we need to respect the theory around patriarchy because it's a helpful tool. It's helped me in my, in my inquiry to dig down to foundational stories. It's helped me to be able to disrupt some of the more destructive patterns in my, in my life. You know, feminist theory has been a, a very, very transformational part of my journey, part of my story. You know, for me, um, you know, I've been reading Jermaine Greer since I was a young fella, and she makes more sense to me than any other human being on the planet. Still today, I just, you know, if I ever got the chance to meet her, I'd just be like, you know, I, 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 I don't think of anybody as being more special than me. So when I meet famous people, I don't really give a shit. I don't fanboy over anybody, but I would fanboy like <laughs> fuck over her. <laughs> I'd be a mess. I'd be like giggling and tittering and I'd be taking selfies. And I do not do selfies. But, you know, um, she's amazing. And uh, look, it, I find feminist theory to be very helpful. And a lot of those theories about patriarchy are really helpful tools just for starting to unpack things. You have to go further than that because that's not enough. You can't just take on that brand and throw around the P word and then, you know, be some, what are they calling them, simps or something? I can't remember what, what the latest word is for to try and shame men into not thinking about these things. But you can't just be taking up the branding and echoing the, the words, you know, just so that you can, I don't know, try and get into somebody's pants. <laughs> um, that's not enough. you got to go deeper than that. So I do. I, I love that. Um, and I wonder, you know, you've been speaking a little to what kind of model or what kind of story would provide or has provided a pathway, you know, into a kind of, um, maybe I'll call it relational masculinity. 
you know, which which uh, seems to be a particular intelligence to a real culture. Because, uh, you know, there's this um, line that gets often trotted out around uh, this idea that if if a culture doesn't initiate its youth, particularly the young men, they'll burn down the village to feel the warmth. But there's there's yeah there's some sense in that of you know real cultures have a have a sense of a keen understanding that there's a necessary journey that must be taken, particularly with young men, um, to guide their you know, capacities, their impulses, and their sense of purpose, you know, into a purposeful relationship to what is meaningful. And, and I mean, indigenous cultures seem to understand that's connection to life and service to life. And so, I guess I wonder, how, how might that be relevant to this moment when, you know, you have a lot of men who are, you know, again, lost largely, right, with this sense of, well, I don't want to be toxic. Um, I don't want to be toxic masculine. You know, I, I want to meaningfully engage in changing this culture or the system or myself. But I also see a deep sense of, yeah, a lack of a, a, a way into a kind of, uh, I, don't, I don't want to call it noble um, you know, masculinity, although the heroic archetype certainly, you know, comes alive a lot of the time, this idea of the personal personal growth, you know, and the self-improvement is the way forward. And I heard you say earlier that that's a bit of a dead end as well. Yeah. Well, it, I mean, it is difficult because we still have to operate in a system that demands that we we exhibit predatory behaviors just to survive, you know, so we can change our language, you know, we can say all the right words and be as correct as we like and try and follow those constantly shifting things that doesn't change anything, you know. Um, we're still being pricks because we, we have to be, you know. There might be a few homeless people who have managed to shed their to genuinely <laughs> purge themselves of patriarchy. Um, but yeah, they'll be homeless because you're not going to survive without that. And you're not going to be able to support the women in your life without that either in this system. So at the moment, we're all trying to sanitize this system. We're trying to um, make it feel more balanced, to make it feel more equal, but it can't be equal. And like I've said before, you probably heard me say, you can't make a dog a vegan. Well, you can, but two things. One of two things is going to happen: the dog's going to die, or he's going to eat you. You know. So we're under a system that depends upon inequality for their infinite growth model to work. So, and and what it does really well is embrace the meta language of anything that challenges it and says, "Yeah, we're doing that now," but it's not doing that. So we'd be doing the same thing but we'd be um, using politically correct words while we're doing it. We're just, you know, you know, your rape culture will have to, you know, take a different form. So, and we'll all be standing here and denouncing rape culture while it's gone a different way. That's usually 10 times worse, you know? Um, so we, yeah, it, it is really tricky. So it's, it can't be a personal journey where we've, you know, we're all encouraged to look inwards and find our sin. And if we can all just as individuals purge ourselves of this toxic masculinity, then it'll be all right because we're a collection of individuals. Bullshit. Like I said before, there's nothing inside you. All there is is what you are in your relationships. And those relationships at the moment are patterned by an economy that um, that is crushing us. <laughs> an economic system um, that needs to end and is ending at the moment. So I guess it's just, you know, over the next decade or two, 
uh, as it's slowly collapsing, what can you recover of your humanity? Um, and it just it comes back to just in the end, it's that relationship with the land. If you can reconnect with the land, then you're right. Then then your intimate relationships will change. Everything will change. You know, the land is everything. And for me lately, and there's a number of people starting to say this, uh, indigenous people all around the world, if we can't bring non-indigenous people back into relation with the land, then everything and everyone is going to die. We can't just help them tweak their civilization to make it a little seem a bit more fair. We can't just, you know, give a few interesting alternative models of masculinity that men can somehow adopt but still keep swimming in this toxic soup of this shitty economy. Yeah, to help kick the can down the road a little bit longer, to help people have an illusion that things can be fair because they can't under this system. But under Bunjil, which is the, the country that I'm sitting on right now, Bunjil is the name of that eagle you got on the wall behind your head there. And so Bunjil is a big creator spirit in this bioregion where I'm sitting right now. And, you know, he's only got two laws that the elders here tell me. And my um, it's my condition for being able to be here and to live for a while uh, in this place. You know, my condition for coming into this country here is that I follow two very simple laws. Do not ha harm the land of Bunjil. Do not harm the children of Bunjil. That's it. They're my operating protocols. You know, and any law that's real and enduring is, um, you know, usually it comes down to a couple of simple operating protocols and everybody can move around following those protocols in the system, um, you know, with a full expression of their autonomy and individuality as long as they adhere to those two. And what happens when you end up with simple operating protocols um, with a lot of different nodes with those operating protocols, and I'm using computer language now, is you end up with amazing flocking behaviors and patterns emerging, you know, and uh, that's what you get. I would love, thank you for bringing that up because emergence is something that I've also been tracking for a number of years now. Um, I worked on a film, you know, maybe eight years ago now with Occupy, the movement, you know, that was quite big at a time. And um, we were tracking essentially like the thread of the activism and the spirituality. And the film, the film became called Occupy Love as this unification of these two forces. Um, but it's also when we notice for the first time this, as you say, this emergent behavior, this emergent response that nobody was quite in charge of, you know, but was also had a kind of intelligence. And that really launched me on a, you know, almost a decade journey of which other commentators like Adrian Marie Brown, who wrote Emergent Strategy, um, and others are really, I think, onto this. And so when I heard you use the phrase emergence in a previous interview too, I was like, oh, wow, this is amazing. Um, and, I'd, and I'd love to hear your take on it as a as a response to these times, um, because I think in the absence of this, let's call it a, I don't know, I mean, a theory of change or a theory of um, responsiveness that people have a sense of, oh, well, you know, we need to use more force to beat the guys on top or force the system to change. And in a very, in a highly complex system um, of which, you know, is sort of teetering under its own hubris, it seems that the idea that more force will be marshaled um, seems impossible and sets up, you know, of course, deep political warfare, which happens in, in all, all sorts of other countries too. 
And so emergence to me, yeah, seems like some kind of emerging recognition that there's, this is, yeah, it's an intelligent response, but I'd love to hear your take on it about why you think that this is so important. Well, it's a, it's a problem too. So I've decided to stop using that word. And I, I've decided to stop using that because it's a wrong, wrong idea, but because, um, you know, we're in this system and we're replicating the patterns of this system. And part of that is to co-opt any idea that's a threat and sanitize it and uh, set put it to work in, in support of the system at the same time as people feeling satisfied that they've challenged the system. And since I started using the word emergence to try and resist that very fucking thing, since I started using that word, uh, other people who've been using that word have found me. And so I've started to see a pattern emerge, like the early proto stages of an ideology beginning to form around that word, which is so funny to have an ideology of emergence is just the biggest oxymoron <laughs> ever, you know, and, and I feel like that would be the moment of complete Armageddon, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it's a very dangerous thing. So for me, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to use that word anymore. Um, we need to just be that. And, and I, I just think as soon as people start to cluster around an idea and start to form rules and meta language and, you know, little, you know, networks around it, then if you give it a name, it's, it's finished. So I just don't give it a name. <laughs> so, yeah. So I've got to find other ways to express that, um, express that now. You made me think of uh, my previous conversation with Michael Mead, who uh, you may know is a, a sort of myth teller and was big in the men's movement. Um, even though he says he, you know, he wasn't really into the men's side, he was into the soul work. Um, but I really appreciated what he said about the ritual, uh, or at least the what is authentic ritual. And and he spoke to this sense. He didn't use the word emergence, but I feel like that's what he was saying. It was like any any attempt to you know codify or to prescribe a template of this is how it is, then you're, you've already lost it. And I hear that a bit in what you're saying too with, the, with this clustering around an ideology of emergence means you've already lost emergence. Um, but that there's something still there, which, I mean, I wonder with you, like authentically done or, or um, the willingness or the capacity to invite in or to court, um, which I, I believe is the wisdom of life itself, you know, the, the presence of this greater... I don't know what to call it, divine being that that something is that something becomes possible that wasn't before. Like that's that's the only way I can describe it, right? It's this like flocking. It's like none of the intelligence of flocking is in any of the single bird, and yet the whole birds can do it together. And and there's so there's something in that, right? Which is sort of beyond any attempt to um, fully, you know, yeah, reduce it to an understanding. But I still think that there's a almost like an indigenous instinctual capacity that I feel I've been, when, particularly around ceremony, right? When, uh, when I've been present to Indigenous ceremony, that there seems like there's this, there, there's a capacity there that um, comes from many decades, it feels, of relation to land, of relation to, you know, beings, and, and how to understand their language, how to um, invite them in, all of that. And I wonder what you, yeah, might say to that. There's something dangerous in replication, and in orthodoxies and indigenous ceremonies, like a lot of people think about it as a static artifact. And the idea is that 
you know, people sort of understand ceremonies as something that's repeated over and over and has remained the same for many thousands of years, and that's not true. You know, so there are there are some cornerstones to ceremonies and some things that need to happen, but a lot of it is is really variable and responsive to changes in the landscape, to the community, you know, uh, the relationships mostly that are going on that are constantly in flux, and um, where the aim is that the complexity and amount of those relations will increase. So that's the idea with ceremonies are about increase, not growth of the system, but increase, which means growth into the micro, which is talking about, you know, um, more intricacy, more, more detail in the relations, because that's where the knowledge sits, is in the relationships. So you increase the combinatorials within the system. And so every time you enact that ceremony, that's going to be a bit different. Um, and and the, the unique expression of all the individuals coming into that is going to change it. So it's the same with the flocking birds. You know how you just never know where they're going to turn next and how the fuck they're all turning at the same time? Well, I'll tell you, next time you're watching that phenomenon happen, look for the outliers. So if you see one bird falls behind, and so that's not a leader or anything. That's somebody who's like... Uh, it's a pattern breaker. So it's, that's somebody who's gone wrong. So it's usually a mutation is a mistake, you know, in any sort of evolutionary kind of sequence. You know, so you'll see that mutation happen. That one bird, for some reason, will fuck up and fall back behind. Then you can almost guarantee that that's the direction the flock's going to go in next. It will turn around and come back in the direction that that bird fell behind. You see one pull out to the side by accident then you know that the entire flock will veer that way. So I have my, my emerging theory around flocking behaviors is that it's, it's affected by outliers. That's not the only variable. You know, there are other things that are contextual, you know, that are, um, you know, both seen and unseen in the environment. My woman and I talk a lot about um, this kind of, we use the word magnetics, you know, in, in some of our ob observations, you know, so she'll be looking out the window and say, magnet birds are back. So we see that season come around again and we go out and we watch those birds and we can see there's something else. They're following another dance. Um, what we might think of as song lines that are like, they're in the land, but they're also reflected in the sky and that these things kind of pull them in a course as well. There are a lot of different things affecting them, but as a system in and of itself, the, the flock the outliers in that flock do determine a lot of the directional changes. Wow. I'm really struck by this um, naming of the outliers, the ones that signal a, a direction change. And again, at the risk of not, you know, sort of naming a step-by-step -step guide, but how might that model be useful around this conversation of, of, of masculinity? Um, for, because it seems, again, like the, the pathways presented in the larger conversation for men, right, is either, you know, personal growth, um, you know, um, uh, turn away from behaviors that are toxic, and somehow that will get us to this paradigm, you know, that, that is better than the current, yeah. and yet there's something else that I feel is is made possible with a different way of, of understanding. Yeah, and so I wonder, could there be some response based on this understanding? Well, basically, you never outsource outsource your story to, to someone else. 
you know, you, you, you are in a constant state of inquiry to dig deeper and deeper for deeper foundations of the story that will help you understand, you know, what's happening. And so when you're analyzing, you're looking at the entire system, it's impossible to hold all of it in your head at once. So you do need to listen to a lot of different stories and allow them to come together. But don't just pick one and sit with that. And you say, oh, that's my brand. That's my story. That's going to go on my bloody, on my page. You know, that's me there. I'm, I'm that one. You know, don't pick brands. You look at the entire system. And that includes the outliers. So in your statistical analysis, you see that bell curve. You have to look at both tails of that distribution. You know, the E minus, E minus is on this side and the A plus is on that side. You need to look at both of those, but you can't generalize either of those across the entire system. So if you happen, if, if you happen to come out on the really wrong side of the court in your divorce proceedings, that's not the story of the world, bros. You know, so if you happen to be, you say the wrong thing and you get canceled, that's not the whole world doing that. You can't make that your story that, oh, this is this cancel culture, this wokeism is ruining the world, you know, because it's ruined my life. And nine times out of 10, bros, it didn't ruin your life. Most of the people I see whinging about cancel culture who've been canceled, that was like the best thing that ever happened to them. Most of them are millionaires now because they get a book deal that a whole heap of other angry or frightened men buy their book. <laughs> and, and it's the best career move that's ever happened to them getting canceled. Now, you know, so if you know men or you are a man that's come out on the wrong side of a divorce, and they've lost everything and find themselves suddenly looking down the barrel of 17 years of working for a woman that you're not going to get anything from. You know, you're not going to be able to have this exchange whereby, you know, you're providing these things and she's fucking you. <laughs> um, and you resent the hell out of that because, you know, you've got to pay a, a third of your wages to you know, for someone else to raise your child that you're never going to see again. Um, that's not the world's story. You know, that's one story. And we need to listen to that story. But that's just, uh, it's an outlier. Because if that was the world's story, then we wouldn't be making most of the salaried wages on the planet. That's That goes to men. I'm sorry, but women do statistically, empirically, they do two thirds of all the work and they get fuck all of the money. Now, all of the wealth in the world, what percentage do you think men own of the wealth in the world? It's it's 90 percent, bros, most of the wealth. So we can whinge about the few guys <laughs> who are left holding their dicks and nothing else and have to spend max 17 years paying for someone else's life. But that's an outlier. And you don't want to focus on that story and then generalize that, conflate that across the system. Because do you know what that logic is? That's the logic that a lot of us complain about as men, as, as irrational logic in our women. So a lot of us complain about women being irrational because in a fight, they'll take one thing and they'll conflate it right across 
their whole life and map that across your entire identity and say you are that. And you just, what the hell? That was one thing. You're being so irrational. We're doing that too. And it's bullshit. And it's the way we're making sense of the world. And it's wrong story. You know, um, so you have to allow an aggregate of stories and models and theory to sit, even when it's contradictory, to sit together and allow that to transform you. Allow that story to go through you and you have to allow it to change you even if it hurts. Even if it's the opposite of what you believe. Um, I've been talking mostly to people, mostly to people for the last few years who I'm very uncomfortable with their worldview and their story. But I've been forcing myself to sit with that and allow those stories to change me. Because you have to. If you want to be approximating the real, then you have to be doing that. Thank you for that. I, I'm struck by the the capacity to hold stories that are different than one's own. Yeah. As, like an essential, an essential skill or an essential... Um, willingness to see beyond one's own entrenched position and that the that's so absent from so much of the online dialogue i wouldn't even call it dialogue really but um uh, that is happening on uh mostly through social media and all the rest right it seems the exact opposite it's how uh how deeply can you force your position on someone else um which just seems to be par for the course right within a culture itself which is largely based on I don't know, positionality um, or, uh, you know, not, not letting him see you sweat and all the rest. But there's some other kind of slower, more, I don't know, willingness to deepen that I feel is part of, again, like an indigenous pace of things. That there's, a, again, a capacity to sit and to listen uh, and to hear. Because the idea of being right sort of abstractly, you know, just as a universal, you know, position seems worthless from a cosmology that understands that the relationship is actually where, you know, the divine is, is present or not. And so I just want to honor that in, in that orientation. Well, that's, that's the, the project of Westernism is to find that singular narrative, that one story to rule them all. That's uh, even Western science. I mean, the, the Holy Grail is unified field theory, right? And that's pretty much the same thing in economics. They're trying to find that one perfect economic system that will be able to be global and unify everything. They want one culture, one language, one way of thinking, one story. You know, they want to find the right story, to find the truth, which it's kind of noble in a way, but they want to find that one empirical truth that everybody will have to acknowledge and everybody can come under that. Ironically, they've had to separate themselves from the only, the only thing that is um, that is eternal and inalienable. They've had to separate themselves from that in order to go on a quest to find it. And and that that one thing is the law of the land. The law is in the land. The law is in the land. I talk about that underground water here. You know, there's law in that, and um, that's inalienable. And it's eternal, and it'll be here long after all this concrete crumbles, you know. And uh, unfortunately, <laughs> they've had to separate from that in order to try and go on a quest to find it in a very clunky um, and inefficient way. They were already standing on it. <laughs> 
it's uh, it's really tragic. I would love to just wonder for a moment around where this impulse for oneness comes from. Like, is it just suddenly a you know idea that a culture virus that took hold and suddenly you know here we go? But I, like, I, I just feel like there's is there something deeper that we might approach? And you know what has what happens to a people whereby the idea of oneness is more seductive than relationship to the land and to place and to to each other. It's it's really funny because um you know originally like the foundational stuff of of what we're calling Western civilization, like they seem to hang a lot of it on ancient Greece, but you had this um long before the Hegelian dialectic of you know two things interfacing and producing one unified thing. You had that Socratic dialectic, which was just that same idea, that indigenous idea I was talking about of all the stories coming together. And from you being able to stand comfortably in any of those stories and actually understand, even if you disagree with it, you understand it so well that you can argue that same point of view and enrich it, you know. So that Socratic dialectic, was very beautiful. So you see a lot of people are, are doing this steel man sort of practice now and trying to um, return to that way of thinking, which I think is admirable. So you had you had him, but then he mentored Plato, you know, who changed things up a bit. <laughs> and then Plato mentored Aristotle, and Aristotle fucked everything. <laughs> you know, he basically invented reductionism. So he was, he was looking for this quest of, you know, being able to ignore the context, ignore land, season, time, space, and be able to focus on one thing, one bright, shiny thing, and to value add to that thing until it became the dominant thing. Now, he mentored this little fella, this little blondie one called Alexander, and Alexander became great, apparently. He... There were two Alexanders. One of them went west and got his ass kicked, and the other one went east and um, applied the philosophy of his mentor um, very successfully and pretty much changed the world forever um, because he began that project of West Westernism, which is an extraction, an extraction not just of resources, like, yeah, that you need to extract some resources to feed your big fucking army so that you can kill everybody. But also what he was extracting was knowledge, knowledge, artifacts, things like that. But, but extracting just little shiny bits of knowledge, just a little bit, something that you can sanitize, rebrand, repackage, value add, and then that's that little bit. And then I can store that into the canon of Western knowledge. I can take that and put it into the repository of this fledgling thing that was called indigenous uh, Western knowledge. So this idea of Western knowledge, that, that project of creating that one story to rule them all, taking bits and pieces, shiny things that we like from this culture, that cu culture, you know, aggregating that together, uh, changing the pattern of each part to try and make it fit this idea of universal knowledge. So universe, you know, vertere in Latin means changed into, and uni means one. So even the Western idea of the universe is something that's changed from a complex system back into one thing, which would be your pre-Big Bang condition. 
So basically the destruction of everything through unification. The openly stated goal of, of the first public education system documents, you know, unification, national unification of thought, word, and deed, and the creation of um, compliant uh, subjects uh, for the work, uh, workforce, military. People who are able to follow orders without needing to know what that's for. So it's the death of everything. And and there's part of me that's that's just this, you know, likes to think of itself still as a warrior, as this, you know, who, bro, fucking, <laughs> sorry, this once were warriors bloody thing. It's still in me. It's still in me. And it wants to, like, um, hate that system and rebel against it. But, you know, my elders tell me, no, that's part of creation too. That's one of the outliers that steers the flock in another direction. It's all right. The universe does breathe in and out. All of this has happened before and all of it will happen again. It's part of creation. You can't hate it. But then I guess I can find a loophole there and say, well, my hate is part of creation as well. <laughs> so fuck you, bro. <laughs> I'll smash you. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Oh. And I guess we're coming back to the beginning to Jake the Muss, to my inner Jake the Muss. Years later, I, I, one of my best, best friends in the world is, is a lesbian. And then another one of my best friends, a lesbian, and they got together. <laughs> they just had a, they just had a baby <laughs> really recently. Most beautiful baby you ever saw. Um, anyway, uh, like, I don't know, about 10 years ago, I sat down with both of them and we were looking at what movie we're going to watch. And I'm like, oh, what's Warriors? Best movie ever. Let's watch that. And I sat down with them and watched the movie. And 20 minutes in, I, I had to stop it. I just said, I'm so sorry. I, I had no idea. Um, this guy's a rapist. I'd never thought of him as a rapist before. My hero was a rapist. And I'm watching him rape as a young man and thinking that's great. He's great. And I kind of just. I think I must have just glossed over that bit. Fuck him, you know? Fuck Jake the Muss. And I just bawled my eyes out because, I don't know, it damaged them, those two women, seeing that. But not, not just seeing the movie because that, that's not enough to damage or trigger somebody, but to see me, to see that part of me, you know, one of their best friends, and just go, ah, oh, that's what you are, is it? And... It was hard, you know, and it's all these realizations. And that's why you can't just throw the baby out with the bathwater, you know, and go, ah, oh, feminists. Like I've watched that YouTube video of one angry feminist who wasn't making any sense. And that's that story. You got to listen to that story <laughs> and you have to let it change you. And thank fuck I let those two women change me, you know, because I wouldn't be, you know, I don't know if what I am now is better than what I was, but I certainly wouldn't be what I am now without them. Without them, they're my sisters, and um, and I really miss them, because I haven't seen them for a year. Mm. Thanks for your tears, Tyson. Ah, oh, can you see that shit? Sorry, <laughs> man. I thought it was very subtle. <laughs> I very, I appreciate. Anyway, it. No, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, tears no. are fine. Mm. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. I still have that. I can't. Yeah. But, you know, women reinforce that too. Uh-huh. You know, I started crying yesterday and it's a woman telling me that, you know, I'm a faggot mm. um, uh-huh. uh, or that I'm faking it or whatever, uh-huh. you know, and to suck it up, get on with it. Stop being a puss. I'm, you know, I'm disgracing myself. So, you know, we're all in this. <laughs> we're all under this economic system that's demanding that we keep running on a broken leg. You know, we're all fucking Nazi soldiers taking speed to try and get through the Russian winter and keep charging forward. And we're being asked to run faster. And we can't, I don't know, I can't keep it up much longer. Can you? No. Yeah. Mm. But we kind of have to, or you don't get to keep that house that you're in. <laughs> that may be the case anyway, but that's a different story. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, maybe I'd love to ask one final question in our time, and so appreciative. is um, I learned uh, that you make traditional tools and weapons. And, you know, in the face of everything that we've just been talking about, and the maybe the depth of the you know calamity upon us something in you feels called or seems to have been called that that that's worth doing this is this is worth it in spite of it all i just i i have to do that that's that's just survival but you know what i haven't done it for six months i tried the other day i tried to make a law stick and it it i was very close to finished and it just snapped in half there was a just an almost a hairline crack going against the grain, and the whole thing just the head fell off it. And um, yeah, that's when I started crying and couldn't stop. And I had to call up this fella and talk and get him to talk me through it because I've just um, that that's how I make meaning. That's how I think. That's how I process stories. That's how I store knowledge is through these things. You know, um, and those uh, two sisters, so those two, uh, that lesbian couple I was telling you about, that's a, one of them is a Palawa woman from Tasmania. The other one's a, a Gamilaroi, Gamilaroi woman. Yeah, I did, I, I made something for them. But there's a lot of story in that. And I talk about that thing that I made them in the book, Blackie, that one of them called Blackie. <laughs> and so I made a, a fishing boomerang out of tea tree for her. And on that, I put this, um, and I've just, I've made a replica of that here uh, out of Gigi wood, which is the hardest wood in the world, which is awesome. Um, and just on that, I have that story. So all four of us have spent a lot of time camping on old man Juma, Vijo's country and having that story from him. And so we have two of his symbols there, one on each side. She likes to spin it like that. This is a fishing boomerang. I made it for her because she lives in Sydney and it's it's statistically quite dangerous to be a um, a woman, an Aboriginal woman in Sydney, especially walking home uh, at night. Um, so I made her this one, uh, but, but re- very sharp so she can carry it in her handbag and she won't get arrested for it because it's not metal and it's a cultural object, but she could just <laughs> <laughs> wow. fuck somebody up with it if they <laughs> try and grab it. Yeah. So, you know, but I got that story. Uh, her and I, we worked on this. We did um, an ant and butterfly dance, um, corroboree like dance um, years ago. And while we were doing it, um, a thousand butterflies came and 
flew around us and they were coming for her because she was doing stuff like that 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 bird in the flock that outlier she's that you need your divergent people and she was doing that business that's why i made her that thing that story is there any is there any final words you want to leave the listener with as we close our conversation i guess um i just have to speak from the law of this place and just remind people don't harm the land and don't harm the children start there recover some kind of masculinity that is real even a fragment that'll do mm. well thank you so much all right Brent. <laughs> thank you for listening to this episode of the mythic masculine if you enjoyed what you heard please consider joining the mythic masculine network a growing community of artists activists poets parents and lovers of mythology ritual and wonder we're co-creating the emergence of a culture of belonging oriented around tending the masculine soul it's a beautiful intimate platform and we'd love to have you join Visit network.themythicmasculine.com to become a member.